I'm going to now give you a little information about our speaker, um, Dr. John Delamater. He will be coming up on stage after I give you this little intro about why he is an expert and qualified to talk on this topic. He brings a broad biopsychosocial perspective to the study of sexuality through the life course. His recent work has focused on changes in sexual functioning associated with age. He has published papers on sexual desire and sexual behavior in persons aged 45 to 75 plus and a paper on sexual satisfaction using data from the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study, which was ages 62 to 67. His recent work considers influences on frequency of sexual activity and cessation of sexual activity among persons 57 to 85 years old. A major review and synthesis of research on sexuality in later life appears in the Annual Review of Sex Research 2012. He co-edited Sex for Life from Virginity to Viagra, How Sexuality Changes Throughout Our Lives by the New York um, University Press. Della Mater was awarded the Alfred E. Kinsey Award for Distinguished Contributions to the Field of Sex Research by the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality. He is the co-author of a primary text in social psychology and another on sexuality. Please join me in welcoming Dr. John Delamater. Thank you. Good afternoon. I think this must be a first, a doubleheader, sex at noon and politics at 145 <laughs> in Monona Terrace. I don't know about you, but I was always told when I was growing up, which is about the same time you were growing up, never talk about sex and politics. And so here we are today with public lectures on both of those at Monona Terrace. I think this must be a first. Um, I want to thank you all for coming today. Uh, and I want to thank especially the Madison Senior Center for the invitation to, uh, to talk with you this morning about intimacy and relationships. Um, I've been writing about intimacy and relationships for 40 years. Uh, for the past 15 years, as Laura said in the introduction, I've been focusing on sexuality and intimacy in later life. Um, much of my recent research has focused on people over age 45 using a variety of data sets. And a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about have a research base. So if you're interested in the specific research studies that are the background for some of the things that I talk about, um, I'd be glad to provide those references for you. Uh, I thought it would be important to start by defining intimacy, talking a little bit about what it is, just intimacy in general, uh, and then we'll move on and talk a little bit more about intimacy and relationships. There's a whole literature on intimacy now. Uh, most people define it uh, as, uh, first of all, a characteristic of relationships. It's not a characteristic of a person. It's a characteristic of relationships. Uh, it's characterized by commitment, a commitment to uh, the other person, uh, there's a sense of caring and concern about that person and about that person's well-being. And that sense of caring and concern is focused on that person as an individual, uh, not as a representative of a social category. So not simply uh, being concerned about that person as a woman or a black or a Chinese-American, but, but concerned about that person as a specific individual. There's also a feeling of closeness, uh, often accompanied by a sense of, of real mutual understanding, a sense that you understand that person and that they understand you, um, and a sense of uh, connection to that person. And finally, intimacy is characterized by trust. Um, uh, one of the common definitions in the social sciences of trust is that it has two components. The first is honesty, a sense that... Um, 
Not that the person has told you everything, but that what the person has told you is true. So a sense that the person is honest with, in, with regard to what they tell you about themselves and about their life. Uh, and the other characteristic of trust is a sense of benevolence, a sense that the other person puts your uh, interests and concerns ahead of theirs, at least on certain occasions. That they're, in other, another way of saying that, I guess, would be they're not selfish. Uh, they're benevolent. They're willing to put your interests ahead of their needs on certain kinds of situations, on certain occasions. Um, people can have intimate relationships with people in all sorts of social categories. Uh, we can have intimate relationships with some of our other family members, uh, siblings, uh, good friends, lifelong friends, uh, neighbors perhaps, uh, even co-workers. So intimacy is not just a characteristic of relationships involving two people who have a long-term commitment to each other. It's a characteristic that we can find in a variety of relationships. Moving on more specifically to intimacy and romance, uh, the additional thing uh, that we find in romantic relationships, the additional characteristic of intimacy, uh, is positive emotional and physical closeness. Um, and particularly probably the emotional and physical would be what makes romantic intimacy different from uh, intimacy in the way that I just talked about it. So romantic intimacy is a special kind of intimacy that occurs in romantic relationships. Uh, and it's characterized by that additional physical closeness and emotional closeness that one feels to the other person. And that physical and emotional closeness is usually expressed in various types of, of touch, uh, various types of, of glances. People talk about special glances, special eye contact. Um, and these kinds of relationships can be important throughout life, uh, not simply in later life, but really uh, some people now are arguing uh, intimacy and this kind of Closeness characterized by touch probably started uh, for most of us at birth uh, and was characteristic of the relationship, hopefully characteristic of the relationship that we had with our caregivers. And there are people who actually write about parallels between uh, the way we were uh, touched and, and uh, held and related to as children and the way we touch and hold and relate to people uh, who are important to us throughout our lives. A fact of life in the 21st century is the rapid increase. Oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I often do this. Uh, so coupled with. Oh, so it's often coupled with sexual intimacy, uh, specifically, uh, not just physical in general, but sexual intimacy in particular. Uh, and it's important throughout life at all ages. One of the striking things that's happening, and I, I'm probably you're all aware of this, uh, but many people still aren't. Uh, is that we're experiencing a rapidly aging population in the United States. Uh, these are census figures. Uh, the first figure is the census figure for 2010. This is actually an accurate count figure or an accurate estimate. Uh, there were 17 million men over the age of 65 and 22 million women over the age of 65 in 2010. Uh, so uh, there are larger and larger numbers of people over 65 uh, every year. The Census Bureau estimates that in 2020, there will be 25 million men over 65 and 31 million women over age 65. And by 2030, the number of people over 65 will essentially have doubled from 2010. There will be about 38 million men and about 40 million women uh, in those age categories. So we have a rapidly growing population of people over the age of 65. And that has uh, created some real uh, challenges for uh, all kinds of research on people. 
because until 20 years ago, most of the people that researchers studied were people under the ages of 45 or 50, because that was the big, big group in the population. Uh, but as this par- population of people our age has grown, more and more researchers have become interested in us and in studying us, studying our physical health, our mental health, our sexual health. Um, so we're beginning to see a much larger body of research emerge about people our age, but there still are some holes in it. There still are some things that we don't know. And for some of us, this becomes a real issue when, for example, we have to deal, as I did this year, uh, with a medical issue where most of the research that had been done on that particular condition among men was men under 45. And so I would say, well, what about someone my age? And the doctor would say, well, we hope it's the same, but uh, who knows, right? And so I hope you haven't dealt with that, but if you haven't, it may be down the road. So we realized that we need to pay much more attention to this population, and that's what's generated the research that I'm talking about, you to, to, about with you today. As the numbers of people our ages have increased, uh, there's been a particular increase in concern about our health and well-being, um, partly because of the lack of information to a large extent about what kinds of health and well-being issues we're going to face, although researchers are trying to connect, correct that. Uh, obviously, the health and well-being of this population is a major uh, contributor to medical and healthcare costs. And so there's a growing concern about how can we figure out what we can do to improve and maintain good physical and mental health in people over 55 or 60 or 65 in order, in part, to get a handle on the rapid increase in healthcare costs. So that's one of the important motivators for a lot of this research. Why study sexual intimacy at older age, right? I mean, there are stereotypes about my, my undergraduate students in my human sexuality class assure me that their parents only had sex twice, <laughs> once for them and once for their sibling, right? So, the, so they think parents don't have sex, let alone grandparents. Uh, so why study sex at later life? Well, because first of all, people actually are continuing to engage in sexual activity in later life. Uh, in my research with people in samples of people 45 to 70, it's about 75% of the men and 60% of the women are still sexually active across that whole age range. Obviously, as you get older, it declines, but there's a, a good deal of, of people, a large number of people remain sexually active. Uh, so why, but, so why study the sexual intimacy other than just to find out what people are doing? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, obviously, to some people, the importance of sexuality does not diminish in later life. Um, sexuality is an important part of intimacy. Um, and so the health of people's intimate relationships, to some extent, is going to be impacted by the extent to which they remain physically and sexually intimate with each other. Uh, and so that would be uh, one reason to be concerned about how to maintain uh, sexual intimacy in later life. Sexual functioning in any number of studies now is clearly associated with positive mental state or positive mental health. Uh, This is from particularly research by Rosemary Bassan, who's done a lot of the work in this area. Um, She finds that people who are more sexually active have uh, better mental health. Mental health, we know, clearly is associated with physical health. And so her argument is, well, continuing sexual activity is good for your mental health, which is also then going to help your uh, physical health. There turns out to actually be a strong positive correlation between reporting good or excellent health. This is now a single item that's widely used in health research. Uh, How would you characterize your your health? Excellent, very good, good, not so good, poor, 
five categories. People who report good or excellent health report at least once a week engaging in intimate sexual activity. Now, obviously, I think it probably works both ways, right? People in better health are probably going to stay sexually active, but I think there's an equally good argument to be made that people who are sexually active are going to stay in better health. They're, they're engaging in physical activity that's going to contribute overall to uh, better physical health. Satisfying sexual activity has been known for quite a few years now to be related to relationship satisfaction. People who are engaging in physical sexual intimacy with their partners are more satisfied with those relationships. And we know that satisfying relationships are associated with physical and mental health. So again, we have a link between both of those kinds of health and engaging in physical, physical activity. I should have said earlier, by the way, that this is, uh, I'm talking about couples of all types. Um, this, we're beginning to do research now on couples who don't fit the traditional heterosexual couple model. Uh, and it turns out that most of the research findings from heterosexual couples are also true of couples made up by people of, of either the same gender or people, couples that include a person who is intersex or transgender. Uh, so really that aspect of the relationship seems not to matter for the things that I'm talking about. Uh, so this isn't simply limited to uh, heterosexual married couples by any stretch of the imagination. And that leads us to talk about diversity in the types of relationships that people are in uh, in this age range of uh, 55 and older. Um, obviously, marriage uh, is uh, one of the main uh, types of relationships, continues to be one of the main types of relationships. 90% of the population in the United States will be married once by the time they reach the age of 70, according to the Census Bureau. Um, for most people, many people, uh, physical sexual intimacy occurs in the context of a marital relationship. Um, social norms certainly continue to encourage that as the setting for the most intimate kinds of sexual activity uh, compared to other kinds of relationship settings. Um, but many marriages end in divorce, as uh, some of us know. Uh, also, as we age, people lose a partner to illness, uh, to accidents, to other kinds of things that intervene. And so clearly there are people who in, that in the, the older age range who are no longer in a long-term partnered relationship, but who were in one for a very long period of time. If you saw the film two weeks ago, The Age of Love, you saw a couple of the people who were featured in that film talk about having been in very long-term relationships and then talk about what the loss of that relationship meant to them or what their experience was when they lost that relationship. Um, and their, their reports in the film are not uncommon among the kinds of things you hear when you do research on that topic with uh, larger samples. So there are increasing numbers of older people who are not legally married. Research reports that there are several other types of relationships that older couples participate in uh, in the contemporary American society as well as others. One, obviously, that we've heard a lot about is cohabitation, where two people uh, live together in a long-term committed relationship, but they, the relationship doesn't have legal status. 
and, and we now are seeing this actually with gay couples who, and lesbian couples who could get married but are choosing simply to cohabit, as do a lot of heterosexual couples as well. Most of the publicity about cohabitation has been about cohabitation and college students and then all of the books about cohabitation. I have four that have come out in the last three or four years are about cohabitation and college students or young adults. But the Census Bureau estimates that a third of the people who are cohabiting in the United States uh, involve at least one person who's over the age of 45. Uh, and some estimates are that a quarter of all cohabiting couples involve two people who are over the age of 45. So cohabitation is something that uh, a significant percentage of people in that kind of relationship are older. There are some good reasons why people in that age range do uh, cohabit instead of getting married. Uh, one of the most commonly cited when you ask them why they haven't gotten married, uh, typically one of them stands to lose economic benefits if they marry. Uh, and that reflects the laws and regulations governing insurance and and, and estate and other kinds of, of issues that people uh, deal with. And so uh, in some cases, uh, they can live comfortably if they don't get married. But if they got married, they wouldn't have enough money to live on. They wouldn't even have enough money to live together. And so there are good economic reasons for uh, preferring to cohabit. Uh, other times, there are other kinds of constraints. Um, I show a video in my class where uh, one of the cohabiting couples, uh, they, they say, you know, we would love to get married, but our kids won't, won't hear of it. Uh, and they don't elaborate on that, but obviously they're feeling like they're, they're constrained by the fact that their children uh, are going to be really upset if they actually take that step of legally getting married. Apparently the kids don't mind if they're living together, uh, but it's, it would be too much if they got married. So there can be those kinds of, of social constraints. And you might have a situation where those social constraints come from other people, not just children, but but other friends or family uh, that the people have. Uh, one of the things that we began to hear about in the last 10 years are living alone together relationships, or uh, social scientists abbreviate this LAT, living alone together. These are people who are who con who consider themselves in a long-term committed relationship, but they maintain separate residences. Um, in some cases, the separate residences are in the same city. Uh, in the film that I show my students, there's another elderly couple who live alone together about eight blocks from each other. And again, in their case, it's their children and their families. You know, it's just life is a lot easier if we just act like we're living in separate residences uh, than trying to establish a joint residence. Um, the funniest, the most interesting couple, they actually live across the hall from each other. Um, and they actually spend a lot of their time in one or the other's apartments, but at least they have separate residences, separate telephones, and they make a big point of checking their messages every day uh, to see who's calling them at their own apartment so that they get some kind of response. Um, in our recent research, we interviewed uh, 24 people, women between the ages of 55 and 80 in, in Madison. Uh, one of them is in a living alone together relationship with a man in Chicago, uh, and that's for work reasons. He's still working down there, has a very good job. Uh, that provides them with a lot of economic benefits, so it just simply makes more sense for them to have two separate residences. They get together most weekends, uh, which is how they maintain their relationship. Another couple only, uh, he's up in, uh, in Rhinelander, and she's in Madison. They only see each other about once a month because of constraints of both of them have care responsibilities for an elderly parent 
in those two communities. And so it's really impossible for either one of them to move. But she, at least, is quite happy in their uh, LAT relationship. Um, a long-distance relationship, uh, this is something that we're beginning to see a lot with faculty couples, uh, where they live literally half a continent apart uh, and get together uh, periodically. Uh, we had, I had a colleague for a while whose husband was in Iowa City, uh, and they had separate residences. They tried to get together one weekend a month, uh, and they would try to do it so that they didn't have any work to do for the two days they were together. But she said even that sometimes didn't work. Uh, given the, the demands of the work relationship. Um, but uh, uh, some of the younger people, at least, are making these kinds of relationships work by, by use of Skype and FaceTime and other kinds of video and digital communication devices, and some of them report that uh, they're, they're actually quite happy. So I think we're going to be seeing increasing diversity in the kinds of relationships that people are in. And it's important to think about that if we provide services for an older population. Uh, we need to move out of thinking that there's only one or two types of people or two, one or two types of lifestyles and have a much broader perspective on uh, what's going on. Let's go on and talk a little bit about the benefits of intimacy. Intimacy uh, in, the re- in the research has been shown very clearly uh, to provide important physical support uh, to people. Um, the relationships, as I said earlier, are associated with better physical health. Uh, the question becomes, well, how does that happen? How is it that intimacy uh, contributes to your physical health, makes it better? Um, if you're in a long-term committed relationship, you're much more likely to be motivated to stay healthy, right? You've got a good reason to pay attention to your health. So you're more likely to eat a better diet. You're more likely to take care of yourself physically, perhaps get your regular uh, preventive health exams and so on. Uh, and you may be much less likely to engage in risky behavior. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that when people enter, uh, people at any age, enter a committed relationship where they live with the partner, they stop doing really risky things like drinking, riding motorcycles, uh, and other things that might harm their health. And I think it's because they recognize now that they have a, a reason uh, to stay healthy to not do that. Um, So diet, exercise, activity, couples will often develop joint schedules. And so a joint schedule may enable you to eat uh, more regularly, to have your three meals a day in a more regular fashion. Uh, It may involve activities with the other person, which keeps you physically active. So that can be another benefit of that relationship. Um, And as I think I said earlier, that regular schedule might help contribute to a better pattern of sleep so that you're getting adequate sleep. Your partner can remind you to do things, to stay healthy, to exercise, take your medicines, go and see the doctor, and so on. Um, And, of course, if you get sick and you have a partner, the partner can take care of you. And that's associated with shorter bouts of illness and with less uh, frequent chronic illness for people. Obviously, one of the reasons chronic illnesses develop is because you get sick, but you don't take care of it. And so... uh, the the initial acute disease becomes chronic because of the lack of paying attention to it. So there are a number of good reasons why uh, physical support provided by an intimate relationship uh, can certainly contribute to better physical health. Um, A a long-term committed relationship also provides emotional support, uh, which can contribute to better mental health. Um, And here we're talking about kind of the warmth and affection and um, self-affirmation that your partner can provide to you. Um, those are very important resources in helping us cope with stress. So when something stressful occurs, 
if there's another person around who can provide you with that kind of support and warmth, uh, it enhances your ability to deal with that stress uh, in, a, in, a, in an effective way uh, and, and perhaps uh, more quickly uh, resolve whatever it is that's causing that stress. Um, they can suggest ways to resolve issues uh, that are causing you stress in your life, whether they're at work or with your family or uh, coming from other sources. And so that can be the information they provide you, the strategies they provide you with can be very important resources. Um, and obviously, another person's or partner's acceptance of us can play an important role in boosting our self-esteem and making us more likely to stay active. Uh, one of the people in that film uh, said, everybody needs someone to understand you and love you. And I think that's exactly what he or she was talking about uh, when they made that comment. Couples obviously are more likely to have uh, economic resources, which can be very important in coping with various kinds of stresses. There are lots of stresses that occur that can be made, uh, you can cope with a lot more easily if you have adequate economic resources. And so things that might be stressful for an individual who's living by themselves on one income uh, might be something that would be much more easily resolved by someone who's, uh, if you have another person's resources as well. So those are, I think, uh, a summary of kind of the benefits of intimacy, they can provide physical support, they provide emotional support, and as I just said, they can provide us with economic support, which can be very useful in helping us cope with stress. So let's talk about reestablishing intimacy. Um, In an existing relationship, and actually from my research, I know this is true, um, and from my life, I know this is true, um, some couples lose or are losing uh, the intimacy in their relationship, the intimacy that they had uh, in the past. Um, I believe that one of the things that contributes to that is a tendency for us to take our relationships for granted, uh, especially in my, my sense and my experience as life, the speed of life has picked up. The pace of life, uh, we are trying to do more and more every day. We're, we're putting positive value on multitasking. And I know there are days when I race around from, from dawn till, till midnight, and I wonder exactly what I accomplished for all of that. So I'm putting my responsibilities to my children, to work, to friends, to my church. Uh, all of those things I put kind of ahead of my relationship, right? And so if I become aware of that, I say, well, next weekend we'll, you know, next weekend we'll do something special. We'll make up for that. But then, you know, next weekend can come and, gee, there's this other pressing thing that you need to do. Um, uh, Robert Sternberg, a psychologist, has written a lot about relationships. One of the images that he uses is he says love is like a garden. It really, you've got to tend it. Uh, it needs water and fertilizer and sunshine, right? And just like uh, a flower that doesn't get water, sunshine and fertilizer will wither and die. So will a relationship that doesn't get that wither and die. And I think that that happens in some relationships, unfortunately. Uh, and obviously, it's more likely uh, as time goes on. Sometimes events that occurred in the relationship in the past have led to estrangement. Uh, we had several uh, uh, touching examples of this in the interviews that we did where some event had occurred years ago. Uh, that had really led to an estrangement between uh, the two people in the relationship. 
Um, I've seen this personally uh, in a couple of uh, situations, friends of mine, uh, where the death of a child precipitated that kind of estrangement. And it wasn't that either person was, in some sense, directly responsible for that death, but somehow the couple wasn't able to process that in a way that enabled them to continue their relationship. So events like that can occur that lead to estrangement. Um, and that can lead, of course, to each person becoming more and more independent and having less and less of, a, of an intimate and romantic relationship with each other. I think it is possible to rekindle that intimacy. I think it's possible to uh, try and, and recapture that. Um, and one of the first things that I think people can do is to talk and listen. Um, one of, in my social psychology course, one of the things I teach about is nonverbal and, and verbal communication. Um, I'm really struck by the fact that I think an awful lot of people, when they communicate with other people, aren't actually listening to what they say. Um, they're spending time planning on what they're going to say. Um, and so they don't really hear what the person says. And also, another thing that I do, certainly, is I think I know what you're going to say. So I kind of just tune out. Right? I think I, since I know it, I don't need to listen to what you're saying. Um, and both of those are really bad habits, uh, particularly in close relationships, right? Because uh, it means you're not going to be paying attention to your partner. You're not going to be listening to what they say. So sitting down and talking and really listening, meaning sitting down and having a conversation when you can do it without interruption, when you can focus on each other, there aren't whatever distracting you in that particular situation, like your iPhone, uh, and looking at the person while you're talking and just simply letting them talk and listen to them and then taking a turn and you talk and they listen to you. Um, if you can do that um, and, and focus on not only on what they're saying, but how they're saying it, uh, I think you might be able to begin to reconnect. You might be able to begin to uh, understand what it is that's, that's blocking you from having that intimacy. Uh, and hopefully, if you have a couple conversations like that and they become more trusting of that conversation process, they might open up. Um, and uh, begin to tell you uh, what it is that they uh, want to you to hear about uh, how they're feeling about the relationship. Shared activities are really good. Uh, spending time together doing things, uh, doing other activities. Um, I've heard people say, well, but we don't like anything in common. You know, he wants to do that and he wants to do that. Well, so look for something that you can do together that you both like. I mean, there must be, I'll bet there's things out there, right? You just haven't thought about it enough. Uh, and probably getting into some kind of area where a center where there's lots of activities going on, you might very well be able to find things that you would both enjoy. Doing things with somebody else provides an opportunity to interact and get to know them again uh, and provides a good vehicle for uh, relating to each other. Uh, couples that I know who have done really well at maintaining intimacy, for example, one couple had a Friday night date from the time they were dating from 7 p.m. Friday night to 2 a.m. Saturday morning, uh, they each got the other person's undivided attention. And that persisted right through five kids and two careers and retirement. Uh, and it was really remarkable that, that they were able to maintain that, but it really made the difference. Another couple I know always go for a walk at 10 o'clock at night for 25 minutes. No matter what the weather, no matter what's going on anywhere else, they go out and go for that walk, and that's their time together. That's when they talk. So making opportunities for things like that can be really important. Um, some people 
uh, are in a situation where uh, they need to find a new relationship. Uh, they need to go out uh, and find, if they're interested in intimacy, they need to go out and find a, a new partner. Um, and again, uh, there are several things you can do about that. This, of course, is the key uh, to this series of, of events that we're in the midst of, right? Uh, was the recognition that uh, there are people who do need to find a new relationship, want to find a new relationship, but might need some encouragement and some ideas about how to do that. Uh, so it's a, there, are, there are things that we can do to encourage people to, uh, to figuratively, if not literally, uh, reach out and touch someone. Um, in the video, the film, I think one of the things that they emphasize is that we're often prevented from taking an initiative, reaching out, by the myths and the stereotypes in our society. Um, one of the people in the film talked about, well, there are all these stereotypes of later life relationships, that they're miserable, you know, that, that, that nothing ever comes of it, it's no fun. Uh, and, he, and they said, I was really put off by that. Well, there are those stereotypes out there. And I, like every stereotype, there's probably a kernel of truth. But, you know, there are lots of late life relationships that are, are really good. Uh, and there are new late life relationships that are really good. Uh, I think another very important set of, of stereotypes that are also talked about in the film are stereotypes about physical aspects of aging and stereotypes about the physical appearance of, of an aging person. Um, it's no secret that we live in a society that values youth and, and youth is often associated with particular kinds of standards of beauty. But that's only one set of standards of beauty. There are lots of standards of beauty. And if you begin to travel, you've already learned that uh, by going to other countries where you discovered that people with very different physical characteristics are considered very beautiful. So uh, as one of the people in the film put it, bodies change, but hearts don't. I thought that was a great line. Bodies change, but hearts don't. You know, our minds and hearts don't necessarily change at all. Uh, we may differ in our appearance a little bit, but uh, we shouldn't let that deter us. Um, one aspect of finding new relationships is to stay active, get out and about, uh, meet new people, take up hobbies, book clubs, uh, uh, various kinds of meal clubs that people are engaged in. And I'm sure the Senior Center has lots of activities that would uh, facilitate getting out and becoming active. Um, participate in events uh, that uh, are important to you. If, if, if religion is important to you, get out and start doing some of the activities in your church. Um, one of the, if, if politics is important to you, get out and start doing political activity. Uh, one of the benefits of that is you'll meet people like you. You'll meet other people to whom religion is important or politics is important. Uh, and so to the extent that you're thinking, well, yeah, it'd be nice to meet somebody, but I don't know how I'd ever find somebody like me or who likes the same things I do. Well, go out to places like that and you probably will. One of the biggest uh, meeting uh, techniques that's going on in the big cities for about the last decade now are volunteer days. Um, and, for example, in Washington, D.C., there's a volunteer day for Habitat for Humanity once a month. And they get like 500 people out, right, who come out and help build these houses of all ages and all statuses. And people are meeting people. Uh, and the nice thing about that is you're meeting other people who share your values about the importance of housing and about the importance of doing something for other people. So look for those kinds of volunteer events uh, as a way to get out and uh, meet people who are very much like you. And I think you'll find that, that there are probably a lot of people out there who are like you and who are interested in uh, forming a relationship. Obviously, another way you can meet other people is speed dating. 
Uh, and that's the third part of the, the third session of our three-part program. Uh, speed dating was the focus of the film. Uh, the the uh, documentarian heard about this speed dating uh, for people over 65 and went to the community where it was occurring and made that wonderful film. I think that film is probably still online somewhere if people want to see it. Okay. Okay. But it's the age of love, and it's, it's really, it's very well done. Um, so, uh, speed dating, not just for the young. I mean, again, we hear about it mostly as the way young people will try and meet each other, but, but obviously people of any age can do this. Um, so, the third event is a speed dating event for people 65 and older. Uh, it's Thursday, October 13th, which is a week from uh, tomorrow, from 4 to 6 p.m., and it's in the Madison Concourse Hotel. Um, you do need to pre-register, and you need to pre-register by this Friday, uh, and you can pre-register by calling that telephone number. It is $5 a person, uh, and uh, if, if it, uh, from the, the film, uh, I think, does a very nice job of portraying the benefits of it. Even, even uh, people who didn't wind up in a long-term relationship benefited by just getting out there and then participating, being active, participating in something. That's it. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience. I appreciate it. So we have time for questions, and we have a couple of mics that uh, someone, if you raise your hand, someone will bring a microphone to you. Professor Delometer, you talked about the, uh, the fact that your research um, affects many different kinds of relationships. Is, have you done anything uh, cross-culturally in terms of uh, different populations um, in Europe or any um, cultural differences between people, not only um, the difference in like uh, LGBT relationships, etc.? I have not personally done relationships and other work, research on relationships in other cultures. Um, other people have. Um, one of the most interesting things, I think, is that the U.S. is one of three or four societies that have been studied out of probably 30 uh, where people believe that you must be in love in order to marry. That's really unusual in the world context. If you think about India, uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries, marriages are arranged. Uh, you may not meet your bride or groom until you arrive at the wedding. Um, and we had a, a woman who was getting her PhD in the psychology department here a few years ago who was from India, um, and she got a letter from her parents one day saying, you're going to get married next Saturday in Iowa City to this man who's earning his Ph.D. in chemistry, and she went and married him. That's the way it works. Um, and in those cultures, there's a belief, if you're lucky, you'll gradually fall in love. But if you're not lucky and you don't fall in love, it doesn't matter. Because the marriage is about cementing the relationships between families. Or it's about economic considerations. It's not about you. <laughs> um, 
So I think, and that's that's something to think about, and think, you know, because it really colors our thinking about relationships. We think about, well, you know, you got to be in love to get married, or you got to be in love to do this or to do that. Um, that is the way our society works, but it's it's atypical in in the world context, and so. Uh, it's, it's possible to emphasize other things in thinking about relationships. And some people, I think, do that anyway. Um, you know, they, they, they find themselves in a relationship that provides lots of benefits of various kinds. And they might not necessarily be in love, but they sort of figure out that maybe that's okay. Another question? What you just said is interesting. And I was familiar with how India does uh, their marriages. Could you talk more about other countries and what, um, why they marry if it's not for love? Well, I think every society that we've studied recognizes the equivalent of what we talk about as marriage, a long-term committed relationship between a man and a woman um, that there's no expectation that it's going to end. It's open. It's an open-ended commitment, unlike, well, we're going to get married and live together for five years, and then we're going to break up. Um, and the, the universal explanation for that is to encourage uh, having children, reproduction, having children and raising children. I think the, the data is becoming clearer that it's very clear that children thrive if they have a very close relationship with at least one adult. Um, a close relationship with two adults is probably even better. Uh, and so society, it's in society's interest to figure out a way to get people to pair up and stay paired up at least long enough to raise the children. And that's what we've actually observed in the United States in terms of the increasing divorce rate. Most people wait till the children are at least mid-adolescence, if not out of the house, before they get divorced. Um, and so that, I mean, they seem to have that understanding that we need to stay together long enough to get these people launched um, so I think that's that's sort of the fundamental thing. We 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 started talking in the United States about love about 1740. It's really and people have done research going back to old magazines and newspapers and 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 starting to see references to love. And and we developed this thing called the romantic love ideal that was fully blown by about 1920, uh, which is the idea that you need to marry for love. The, there's only one and only there's one and only one true love out there for you. Your job is to go out and find it. Um, uh, my beloved is perfect, which gets in the way of communication in some relationships uh, and several other kind of beliefs that all kind of go together. Uh, and I do a whole lecture where I bring in clips from movies and clips from popular songs just extolling this, these beliefs. You know, it's so, it's so out there. Um, love at first sight, I mean, that, that's unknown in many cultures. That, that wouldn't make any sense to people. Or what? Are fairy tales. Fairy tales. Oh, that's where the, that's that's where we first ran into them. Yeah, fairy tales. Other questions? Yeah, um, I really, I resonate with what you just said about um, um, other cultures because I happen to come from another culture. I come from Nigeria in West Africa and back where I come from, you know, um, marriage is not all about you or your spouse. So it's not all about love. It's all about the family, just like you said. 
you know, so um, your family gets involved, you know. So we say, you know, when you're getting married, you know, you're not just marrying her. You're marrying the family, and she is not just marrying you. She's marrying your family, you know. So, um, and that helps, you know, to keep the marriage because sometimes, you know, um, when you want to get out of the marriage, you know, you consider your dad, you consider your mom, you know, you consider some people from your family, you know. So you consider a lot of a lot of things, you know, and you, you don't just fall out of marriage, you know, just because you're tired of it. You know, if you're tired of it, you know, um, you, you think about your, your family. You know, if you come from um, a family with reputation, you know, you think about your family's reputation, you know, so... You, you carry all that along. And when you're going to, that's why when we're going to get married, you know, you don't go alone. You know, you go with your family and, you know, your kinsmen, people from your place, you know, from your village or whatever, you know, will go with you to your wife's place. And then your wife's dad can be just alone. You know, he's, he's also going to have people from his own area, you know, so you come to the first time, you know, the introduction. It's going to be the first introduction. You know, your, your, your spouse is bringing you to her family and her kinsmen, and you're taking your family and your kinsmen to, to her place. First of all, it's her place, you know, to go and say, this is the man that wants to marry me, and this is his family, and then um, these are his kinsmen, and then, you know, and these are my own family and my own kinsmen, you know, so... People get to meet and know each other, you know. So that commitment goes beyond just your commitment. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing people, you're bringing a whole village, you know. So it's, they're all at stake. So whenever you want to do anything, you know, against that marriage, you're going to be thinking about all the people you took there because they all went with you to say, yes, we agree. Yes, we agree. So, you know, it, it's not just, you know, just your thing. No, thank you. Yeah. This is about gender. Uh, this room has many more women than men in it, it looks like. Is this typical of people um, seeking relationships already? Are we outnumbered? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other, are we outnumbering them, I mean? You outnumber them. <laughs> Actually, uh, there's been some speculation that one of the things that occurs in our society in terms of the gender division of labor is that relationships are women's work. Um, My classes are 75, 80% women on sexuality and relationships at the university. And the university is 50% men and 50% women, right? So it's it's clearly there's something about the topic that is of greater interest to women. And some people suggest it is because we expect women to do the work of maintaining relationships. Um, so I don't know if that's true for any of you, but that's a piece of it, I think. As I said, uh, women are, are the life expectancy of women right now is 87 years. The life expectancy of men is 78. So there, as, as people, as you get older in, in your age group, there are going to be more women than men. And it's going to become quite noticeable by the time people are in their 70s and 80s. So in that sense, you do outnumber them. Yeah. I have no idea. Uh, actually, we were speculating about that when we were on the radio a few weeks ago. Um, 
The, my sense of the earlier research on, on the use of uh, technology to meet partners was that um, it was uh, people who uh, were looking for somebody like them but didn't have many of them available in the immediate environment. Um, uh, and so whether that's carrying over now to people who are older, I don't know. We do know that older people are, are less likely to be using electronic technology than young people, less likely to be using digital technology. So that would be one thing that would say that's, that's presumably going to change as people who are good at it get older. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I, I always feel like saying if any of you had experience doing that, but I realize that Probably if you have, you wouldn't want to raise your hand. Oh, yeah, I did that, but I didn't meet anybody. Wasn't it in the movie there was somebody who said they had tried that, wasn't there? And it failed. Are there? I have a very good friend who's in a long-term, two-and-a-half-year relationship, and she met that person online. And she's in her late 50s, and he's in his 70s. What's the site? I'll have to ask her. <laughs> As a married person, I don't go to those sites. And put it in the newsletter. <laughs> I've got a question here. Plenty of fish. How does she feel about it? Oh, okay. There's research on younger people's use of dating sites and, and even Facebook pages that shows that the typical person between 20 and 40 who's posting on those sites, um, they actually misrepresent themselves in some important ways. Um, so uh, the, the women, for example, will either not say quite how old they are or they'll actually say that they're younger. Uh, men overrepresent their physical attractiveness and their wealth. Um, and so there are any number of stories out there about people who met somebody they thought was beautiful and rich and they showed up and actually <laughs> neither. Uh, and, and, you know, a couple of experiences like that would turn you off. I don't know if that would continue among people who are older or not, but I mean, you're putting an image out there, right? You're creating this digital persona, and, and you can kind of play with it. The, the generous interpretation is that what people will do is they, they put up the person they'd like to be, right? It's not that they're, they don't think of themselves as actually lying about who they are. It's just that that's... So a man who's not particularly fit, uh, in one of these studies, a man who was not particularly fit portrayed himself as physically active and working out three times a week. And they said to him, well, what, what's up with that? And he said, well, if I met the right woman, I'd be motivated to do that. <laughs> so, which ties in with the notion if you're in a relationship, you're motivated to take care of yourself. I've got a couple of questions. What happens to people who are in uh, these secondary relationships after losing their primary relationships and then someone passes away? Uh, that's one. And the other thing is I tried to interest a woman I know um, in the speed dating event, and she was a retired nurse, and she was quite um, dismissive of it. She said the highest incidences of sexually transmitted diseases are among people 50 and older. And if you would comment on that. 
What the statistics show is that the most rapidly increasing rate of sexually transmitted infections is in people over 50. It's the increase, it's not the number. Okay? Among people 15 to 24, there are 4 million new cases every year in the United States. That number has been very stable for 10 years. There's no increase. Among people 55 and older, we're getting a few hundred new cases every year, so it's a big increase. So that's the statistic. The, the, it's an increase in the rate of new cases is high among people over 55. It's not that lots and lots of people over 55 yet have STIs. Clearly, that, and that, uh, that clearly happens among people who are getting out there and becoming sexually active again, getting into new relationships. Um, it undoubtedly reflects in part the fact that most of those people had little or no sex education uh, because when they were in schools, it wasn't being, they weren't getting comprehensive sex education. They still aren't in most school districts. Um, it also, the world has changed. I mean, um, I didn't teach about sexually transmitted infections 40 years ago. I didn't have to. I didn't teach about AIDS until 1988 or 89. Uh, so the world has changed. These things have become much more problematic. And unless you've been tuned in, you're just not simply, you're simply not aware of that. So if you go out and start dating, it's, it doesn't occur to you that you need to be concerned about that. There uh, is a, I was telling, uh, there's a sex education book for people over 50 now called Older, Wiser, and Sexually Smarter. Um, and it's full of information. And the whole, the whole idea is people who are over 50 who are getting out into new relationships should, should read this book. Um, and it's, it's paperback, and it's, right, it's very inexpensive. Um, so we have a big job, I think, of providing sex education for those people because they are putting themselves at risk. Does that answer your question? Relationships through speed dating uh, where that partner dies. Is there any comments about that? It's just... Uh, you know, what we say to younger people is you've got to communicate before you have sex. Um, did I misunderstand? Yeah, I'm talking about, it's an entirely different topic. It's uh, where people meet a, a partner, such as the speed dating event. Yes. And they're together for a time, and then that partner passes. Oh. Any comments about that kind of situation? Any data on that? No. Um, it's even hard to get good data on, on how many times specific people have been married. I mean, virtually no government or large-scale survey asks that. Um, that may reflect a lack of imagination on the part of the people who put those studies together. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are anecdotes out there about that. And obviously a woman is more likely to have that experience than a man because of the difference in... Uh, life expectancy. So if an older woman gets into a relationship with a still older man as a second relationship, it's quite likely that he will die before she does. Um, there, someone wrote an article about 10 years ago now saying that the solution clearly here is that uh, women should be marrying men who are nine years younger, that that would solve the problem. So if we could get that across to young people, you know, then in 40 years we wouldn't have this problem. I think we have time for one more question. Are there any, any more questions? Thank you very okay. much for coming.
Politics at 145. Thank you very much. Please remember to fill out your raffle um, slip there and drop it in the box on the way out. Um, if you want to register for speed dating, you can call the Senior Center at 266-6581. We'd be happy to help you out. And if, otherwise, if you have any other questions, you can just stop and ask one of us on your way out. Thank you.